Welcome to the Protectors Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Piccolo. Hey, thanks for joining me today. Today's going to be a bit different of a show. I'm going to be talking about my book, Unwavering. It'll be available on Amazon for full release on Friday, March 15th. It's now available on Kindle. But one thing I wanted to do is I wanted to chat with Bill Corcoran real quick. He's a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, and he also really supports the the law enforcement agents out there. So, Bill, tell me what you got going on. First, uh, thanks for having me on, Jason. Um, I want to call you doctor, but it sounds kind of funny coming out of my mouth. Uh, this, is, this May, to start off police week, um, my younger brother, who's also a federal agent, and I will be riding in the police unity tour. It's a nationwide event to raise awareness of those that have lost their lives in the line of duty. Our motto is, uh, we ride for those who die. Um, so this year, my brother came up with the idea of doing 150 push-ups a day for the next 57 days each. So that's one push-up for every law enforcement officer that was killed in the line of duty. And uh, it starts tomorrow, so hopefully I'll have some monster pecs when it's done. <laughs> Definitely, brother. Now, tell us about the ride itself. The ride itself. This will be my third year participating. Um, we start. I ride for Chapter Four out of Virginia. Uh, we start in Richmond. First day we ride about 100 miles to Charlottesville. Second day we ride about 85 miles to Warrington, and then day three, about 45 miles into DC, and it culminates with um, all 10 chapters meet up at the old RFK Stadium, and then we ride two by two through the steep streets of uh, Washington DC and end at the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial, where it's filled with other law enforcement officers, um, survivors, and it's just a very, very emotional, very, very physically trying experience, and I look forward to it every year. Yeah, and I, every year I thank you for doing it. I'm definitely thanking you this year. I, I heard your, your podcast with, uh, with Vic Avila, and it just got me thinking, you know, because he said that, that Jaime Zapata is, is often forgotten, and he's not. His name hangs in the office. On the, on the wall in my office every day. So he's not forgotten by me. And I want to do my part to keep the, the memory of every other law enforcement officer out there. So. Yeah, exactly. And if that's one thing we can get out of that podcast, that'd be great. And that's one thing I'm going to be pushing over the next couple months for that one, too. Yeah, so any support we can get from, from you or your listeners, you know, cheer us on. We have a Facebook page, Twitter handle. Uh, I can get all that to you. You can push it out so people can follow us and, uh, and give us the support as we're going through this. Well, while we're on it, what's the uh, what's the Facebook page? Uh, it's Team Corcoran, C O R C O R A N eighty eight fifty challenge. Awesome, thanks. I'll definitely push that out. Thanks a lot, Bill. All right, Jason, I appreciate it, brother. Yeah, I really have to give Bill a lot of props for what he's doing. Uh, this year is especially tough for me for the law enforcement memorial because um, in twenty eighteen I lost my best friend Chris Bacon in a line of duty in uh, North Dakota. We were in the Border Patrol together. I actually knew him from my Army days. He's the uh, godfather of my son, Johnny, just an all-around great guy. And uh, he died in the line of duty working for CBP last year. And uh, once you read my book, you'll see a lot of Chris interjected in there. And it's just a huge, he was a huge influence on my life. 
huge influence on me just doing the right thing, huge influence on my work ethic in the Border Patrol and later on. So a lot of him is in my story. And I, you know, I'm just so glad he's part of my life. Um, so this year, really support your law enforcement. I mean, you really have to support them every year. But man, there's there's way too many things going on right now, uh, hurting our protectors out there, killing them. So, uh, yeah. So transitioning over to my book, I never really thought about writing a book. I mean, I always thought about being a writer some way, journalist, something along those lines when I got out of the government. But after my, you know, one of those things, you always want to leave your legacy or behind for your kids, for your loved ones. So they kind of know who you were. Now I had, you know, at the time I started to write my book, 18 years in law enforcement. And that doesn't include my 1990s in the military. So I had a lot of government service behind me. And I said, you know what? Let me just put this on paper while everything is like really fresh in my mind. Let me not wait. Uh, I'm tired of waiting. I want to just get my story out there. So in October, I believe it was October 7th, um, I actually have an email between me and uh, one of my friends. And they said, you know, just write your book. So between October 7th, 2018, and now I wrote, uh, sought out a publisher and got my book published and it comes out this week. So yeah, I'm excited. Um, the book is mostly about my army stories in the nineties. Actually, I should say it's mostly about my law enforcement, but it includes my army stories from the nineties. It, it, my time on the Southwest border with the border patrol as a customs ice special agent working narco trafficking. Uh, I always call it my pit stop in Iraq. I got involuntarily recalled and, in 2005, 2006, uh, did a tour in Iraq with the Army as an infantry captain. Came back, worked for DOD for a bit. And then the last part of the book is going to be about my transition to ICE, uh, to the headquarters component, and then eventually blowing the whistle on some activity I was I found really atrocious. So that is what my book is about. So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to read one of the chapters. Now, to preface, this is right after I got out of the Border Patrol. I've been in ICE for a little while now, or a Customs Special Agent for a little while now. And this is one of my first law enforcement operations. And this is kind of me detailing what the border agents are like. So here we go. Ready. Action. The good agents always get chewed up and spit out. The shelf life for an agent on a border before burning out is roughly five years. That is five years working day in and day out to make the smallest dent in a smuggling and trafficking game. There is no transition of experience from the seasoned agent to the incoming agent. Border knowledge cannot be willed to another agent. It doesn't work that way. There is no time to write what lessons you learned or instill your work ethos to another unless they are willing to go above and beyond. Most workers, employees, agents, whether in law enforcement or just public sector, Know that at a group of 10 employees, five work hard, three support them, but are just support, and two aren't worth a damn. This held true on the border. Dope, crystal, weed, powder. These are not sexy words to federal managers. What is sexy is money, intellectual property rights, and terrorism. Funding goes towards that, and the border agents are left out to dry. Border agents are to bust their ass put smugglers in jail, and dismantle major drug trafficking organizations and still have a home life and career. 
It doesn't or can't work out like that without 100% buy-in by management to fund the operations and support the agents. The smuggling organization has no burnout. It's their way of life. The core smugglers have been born and bred into this culture. Their burnout is either death or jail. Ever hear of a retired smuggler? Neither did I. They learn by their mistakes and adjust to our tactics. You cannot defeat a smuggling organization by rotating agents in and out of the border. An agent spends three years learning the ropes of the border, the ways to work narco cases, how to seize illicit proceeds and assets, present cases, and become adjusted. The next year is they find themselves trying to find a way out, find a better life for their families, and to build their career. Most do not make it out. You see them becoming reactive, moving to another agency, or drinking the management Kool-Aid. In this case, reactive was the name of the game before I got to the high-intensity drug trafficking area, Haida Group. The common tactic was for the drugs to be seized or detected by a uniformed officer at the port, and a duty agent would respond. The special agent would analyze the situation and determine what to do next based on a consult with their supervisor. A small amount of weed, for instance, 40 kilograms, would just be seized. No prosecutor at the federal level will take it, and a very slim chance any San Diego district attorney's office would take it either. Smugglers knew this. It would bombard the border with 40 kilogram weed loads when an attempt to keep officers and agents busy with the light loads while the powder and big loads push through undetected. Reactive is an ugly word in the counter-drug world. It means narcos run the gambit, and they run the game. Word came down from headquarters to make proactive cases a priority. Management answered the headquarters directive and built out two proactive counter-narcotics group immediately. Luck had it, I was chosen to be part of the first proactive teams. Excitement pulsed through my body as my first real operation as a special agent was underway. The first operation out of the gate was a covert follow-out of a Chevy Astro minivan laden with a load of cocaine. The cocaine-laden vehicle came in through the San Ysidro port of entry. A primary alert officer, the officer that has a first go at any vehicle coming into the U.S., noticed a driver and sole passenger were acting nervous. The alert officer sent the vehicle to secondary inspection. Secondary is just like it sounds, a second chance to look at the vehicle before it is either seized for having contraband or let go to travel north freely into the United States. While the officer searched the vehicle, the anxious driver and passenger were sent inside to talk to another U.S. officer. The officer searching this van spotted packages filled with tightly packaged bundles of what appeared to be narcotics in a dashboard. The officers called for a canine to run the vehicle to verify a narcotic hit. The canine alerted positive to the van. Now came decision time. Follow it out or season in place. The suspects weren't alarmed. The operation wasn't burned, and the group supervisor gave us a go-ahead to follow it out. Agents set up the dot up and down the highway, off of exits, geared up for takedown at any moment, and a helicopter, a.k.a. Air, was up to track the van's movements. The officer released a van with the two suspects, a Hispanic male and female, likely posing as a couple. The van was off, heading down to San Diego Interstate 5 to an unknown stash location. I was new to real-life surveillance, only having had academy training before this. 
We hung back so I could watch and learn by the agents that do this work daily. Air called out the target van as it moved north and turned into a residential area off of I-5. The van made a turn, made turn after turn, causing the trailing agents to continually change the eye. The eye was the agent that had eyes on the target and called out the location. The drug-laden van turned out, uh, turned out a narrow side road and the agents peeled off, giving the eye to our helicopter providing air cover. We were too late to turn around, so we decided to drive down the road behind the van with the belief that we can just keep driving by. Well, it turned out the road was a dead end and a van spotted us trying to do a U-turn. We were burned. The training agent looked at me and said, take them down. I jumped out of the sedan, pulled my Glock 19, and started barking commands at the driver to shut off the van and get out. He complied, but the female jetted to a house and ran inside. I cleared the van while cover agents started running up. An agent cuffed the driver. I ran up to the driveway to the house with three other agents, ready to stack and make entry into the unknown. This was my first narco load and perceived an armed threat behind every door. We stacked on the front door, opened it, and as we encountered the female, pa- we encountered the female passenger as we entered, yelling at her to get to the ground. She dropped to the ground onto her stomach, and an agent handcuffed her immediately. I cleared the house with another agent, room to room, closet to closet. No guns, drugs, or money found. We took the suspects into custody and drove the van, the van back down to the port to be ripped apart. The van turned up 20 kilos of cocaine in the dashboard. The house was a stash location and was burned, not to be used until the heat wore off. The place on a dead-end road was great for the smugglers. Look what happened as we drove down the road. We were spotted right away. If we were bad guys there to rip them of their cocaine, they would have detected us coming up. Now, that's just one story of the border. One story. These types of things happen every day at our southwest border. And not just the southwest border. Anywhere you could funnel drugs into the country, it'll come in. It boggles my mind how much gets in. Um, Check out my book. It's coming out this week. I tell a whole bunch of stories about my day's work in narcotics, fugitive operations, border patrol, you name it. I'm just glad I actually have a, a voice now. It's great. being able, Now I have the podcast. I could actually you know, talk to some real heroes, some real protectors. And thank you so much for following me. And please check out the book and go and support Bill. Thank you.